one of the things that happens when you sacrifice freedom for safety is not only do you wind up misguidedly thinking that that sacrifice will get you safety when it won't, but you also lose any motivation you have into thinking about how to keep yourself safe because you think someone else is, you think I'm giving them my freedom Hmm. on loan because they're going to keep me safe. Mm -hmm. And then when they decide, they'll give my freedom back to me. What actually happened is you gave away your freedom permanently. They're never going to give it back. They don't know how to keep you safe. So you lost your safety. And now you and now you gave up all responsibility you should have had to thinking of how you're going to keep yourself safe. And so now you are three times worse, worse off because you gave up your freedom, you gave up your safety and you gave up the self-awareness and the and the responsibility that you have to creatively think through how you can keep yourself safe. So now you lost control over your own self. That, everybody, is Chris Masterjohn. And this is his return appearance to the Optimal Performance Podcast. And Chris is a independent scientific researcher who looks at out-of-the-box thinking to translate complex science into new practical ideas that you can use to help yourself on your journey toward vibrant health. Chris Masterjohn, PhD, has been on Rob Wolf, Ben Greenfield Fitness, uh, Cresser Institute. He is one of the most thorough researchers that I've come across in the world of health and wellness and vitality, especially nutrition. And as you just heard, today we are talking about COVID. We're talking about the the foods and supplements that you should be t- taking a look at um, if you get it or if you just want to boost your resilience. In this episode, we talk all about vitamin D, arginine, vitamin C, zinc lozenges. You know, we have to have better tools, right? We have to have options in order to boost our immune systems and to be our most strong during this crazy time. As we go into the winter, as we go into the fall, it's important that all of us are are boosted up so that we can be our best and protected. So uh, in this episode, as you know, as you can already tell, um, we get into some um, some divisive topics. And for some of you listening, you're lockstep right on board with everything that we're talking about. And for some of you, this is like a little out of your comfort zone. And what I encourage you all to do is to to really listen with an open mind. None of this is controversial, honestly. This is just some basics around nutrition and supplementation. Uh, for the coronavirus. And um, we need to know this stuff. Uh, I'm better off for understanding some of this information provided. And I know that you will be, you will be too. Uh, I just wanted to make a note. You know, I was doing the liver cleanse. I, I released a couple of episodes. Um, I decided not to continue with it. Um, I'm doing some more research on it, but uh, I just wasn't prepared to continue to do the thing because uh, the more that I looked at it, the more I thought maybe this is not the, the right thing for me right now. So uh, I'm going to bail on that for now. I may revisit it down the road, but but for now, um, it's just not the right time. So pivot. I'm happy to release this episode with all of you. You can learn more about me and the work that I do as a coach at seanmccormick.com. And there's a show archive. There are is a uh, shopping center inside the uh, website at seanmccormick.com where you can get discounts on products and services. And uh, you can always follow me on Instagram at realseanmccormick. If this is your first episode, thank you. Thank you for coming. Welcome. There is a lot, a lot, a lot of cool content if you want to go dig through whatever player you're listening to. Remember to subscribe as always um, so you can be notified when new uh, episodes are released. And um, thanks for being here. 
Ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, Chris Masterjohn, PhD. Welcome everyone to the Optimal Performance Podcast. My name is Sean McCormick. I'm a life coach, performance coach, wellness entrepreneur, and it's my pleasure to bring to you every single week the world's leaders in the field of performance so that you can live your life at its most optimal level. Plus, cutting edge ideas so that you can stay ahead of the curve in an ever-changing world. Let's dig right in. And we're here with Chris Masterjohn, PhD. This is a return appearance for Chris. Welcome back to the Optimal Performance Podcast. Thanks for having me back, Sean. It's great to be here. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to have this conversation because I know you to be so thorough in detail and uh, and clarity. And I've, uh, you know, we've we've talked a couple of times and your shirt kind of says it all. For those of you watching on uh, watching on YouTube, um, he's waiting. He's wearing a shirt that says "Freedom Over Fear," and it's an important idea. And uh, as I think about it now, I think part of freedom for a lot of us is having knowledge, having an understanding of the information that's out there that that may be um, not included in sort of the mainstream narrative sure. from yeah. in the mainstream narrative. Not only is TV, but it's also your cousin and your friend who are who are echoing it. And so, yeah, I'd love to start by asking you when, at what point, uh, did did you decide? Okay, I'm going to start being more outspoken about natural immunity, and I'm going to share what I know and try to help people. When when did you make that choice that you're like, okay, this is I'm going to shift my focus here. So. On the COVID front, I was kind of forced into spending most of my time researching COVID by COVID because just, uh, you know, what what my audience valued out of me and what they were willing to pay for just kind of totally turned upside down in March 2020. And so just by nature of paying attention to what people needed from me, that put me in the place of trying to apply my nutrition expertise to COVID. And so as things went along, I was immersed in COVID research basically from the beginning. So spending, you know, a typical day in say March to September of 2020 was I might have spent somewhere between six and 13 hours going through the 200 titles that were released in the scientific literature as preprints that day, seeing which ones of those were so important that I should read them and which ones I could write about. And so as things progressed, I had, I was coming at it from, you know, back before the vaccines were released, back when lockdown was the normal thing. And, you know, as things were going along there, my mind was just basically immersed in what are the different nutritional things that you can do to protect yourself? Yeah. And so at that time, you know, the natural thing was to view nutrition as just one of the multi, the sort of multi fat, one piece, one tool within the toolkit of things that you could do to protect yourself. And in terms of when I think I do, I mean, I was publishing about, about this stuff all the time. I didn't think of it as being outspoken. I just thought of it as just reporting on what had been reported in the literature. So I feel like I was kind of pushed into uh, be. I feel like I was doing the same thing I was always doing when the mainstream narrative turned into a kind of bullying mentality where 
this is the one way that you have to deal with this. And if you say anything that could be viewed as critical of it, then, uh, you know, you're the, you're the, you're the reason that we're still in a pandemic. And so I think, you know, as the, um, and there was a very curious association between, I live in New York city, right? And so in New York city, the peak of the pandemic was March and April of 2020. And it has never, ever, ever looked anything like that. And it never will again, look anything like it did in March and April of 2020. So we were hit so hard at the very beginning of the pandemic that the pretty much all the people who could easily die of COVID already died of COVID. And we had, if just taking the numbers at face value, we had four to 600 people dying a day in actually they later updated it. So I think there are some, I think there are some weekly averages. If you go back retrospectively in the data where it says that seven or 800 people were dying per day for a few weeks during that period. Um, and, and so as time goes on, there's a few things that happen. One is that one is just selection bias. So if the people who could die really easily died up front because you got hit so hard, then those people are already dead. And that's a tragedy. Um, you know, and every other person who dies in the future is also a tragedy. But that virus came and picked the low hanging fruit and the low hanging fruit is gone. And so now, you know, when New York gets into like escape velocity, velocity for third for wave three, basically brings New York up to a maximum of 10% of the total death rate. So we our experience of being able to 4x, 5x, 6x the death rate because of COVID has come and gone, and we will never, ever, ever again be anywhere near it. That's partly because those people have already died, and it's partly because of cumulative uh, herd immunity. And I, the way I see herd immunity, it's I don't think herd immunity is just to uh, getting sick. It's also before you hit herd immunity where people aren't going to get the illness anymore, you start to get herd immunity where when people do get the illness, they have lower viral loads because they have because more people have some partial immunity that prevents them from having it go out of control, but it's enough to spread it, right? And so that's why if you look at the first, second, and third wave of the of how, how it went in New York City, what you see is the death rate was really high in the first wave. It was 15 times lower in the second wave per case. So the second wave, went, the cases went higher than the first wave, but if you look at the death, it's like this giant thing like this. And then the second wave is like this little pimple mm. because the death rate per case was 15 times lower in the second wave. And now it's half that. So now it's even lower. Um, and so it just so happens that living in New York City, where we were hit so hard at first, when our healthcare workers were working during the height of the pandemic in a PPE shortage where they didn't have the right personal protective equipment and they were showing up to work anyway. And at 7 p.m. when the nurses shift changed, the whole streets in New York City just burst out in cheering and people were ringing bells just to cheer on the health workers because these were our heroes. So that's all come and gone. Like we're not in a state of emergency anymore. And now now they're bullying and saying, you know, I'm banned from going to the gym. I have a squat rack, rack right next to me because I'm not allowed <laughs> in the gym because I didn't, you know, because I, I didn't take the vaccine. I, I, never, I have no reason to take the vaccine. I've had COVID twice. 
my natural immunity is stronger than than what the vaccine would give me. If I were going to think about the vaccine, now is the silliest time to take it because I just got over a COVID case three months ago. And so, you know, even if I were to get vaccinated, it would make more sense to wait until that natural immunity would start to wane anyway. Um, but I'm, and I, but anyway, uh, the fact that the narrative turned into such a bullying, like you must do this. And if you don't, if you say anything critical about the vaccine, for example, then I literally had someone blame mass graves in Mexico on me because I posted something that was critical of the waning efficacy of the vaccine over time. <sighs> and so I had, I had a, a friend, uh, a friend who was uh, a doctor who I, I thought that she questioned whether I was human, but it, it turned out after discussion, what she actually meant was if I were to go into an ICU and see the people there and still say the critical thing that I said, then she could decide that I wasn't human. But anyway, I was just doing the same thing that I was doing the whole time, just reading the research and reporting on it. But as the mainstream narrative got more bullying, then all of a sudden I, I became outspoken, but all I was doing was just uh, reporting on the research. Like, like I always was. Yeah. Although what really, what really flipped though, was, um, you know, when, when I got kicked out of the gym and I did within three days, I had a squat rack and turned half my home office to a home gym. 40% of people in my zip code are banned from the gym. And most people, wow. even if they have the money in New York city, in New York city, don't have the space to set up a home gym. I'm just lucky that I, I mean, I built that privilege for myself, but that, but most people don't have it. And, uh, but that was just, you know, wiped it off. Now I can squat barefoot in my boxers and whatever, but what wh I think what got me real passionate about, um, really feeling like I should be the one actually speaking out rather than just being seen as speaking out, uh, is just watching tens of thousands of people be fired all around me. I think it's ridiculous that I think it's ridiculous that I have total control over whether I choose to get the vaccine because I just happen to have been stubborn enough that I quit my job and started my own business because I didn't want anyone telling me where I had to be at 930 in the morning on Monday. And I just happened to be good enough at that that I can pay the bills that way. I don't, I don't think it's fair that, I think it's fine that those, that, that, that those two reasons are why I successfully run my own business, but I don't think it's fair that those two things are what determines that I have the right to control what goes into my body and all the people around me don't. Mm, yeah, yeah, that's a really, that's a really key point. Yeah, the, and all of us, even, even for people who are entrepreneurs or don't have bosses or don't have to worry about mandates or suggestions by their employers. Yeah, it, it is a it is a unique and empowering place to be. I'm obviously in the same same position. Um, and it gets trickier when you're navigating that situation for your children, you know, you have to get the right paperwork, you have to have to be smart. Um, uh, but and it also varies so much from state to state. <laughs> um, depending on how our behavior and how we're supposed to think about the, the entire the entire pandemic, the, the entire situation. But one thing that I think that, that really goes back to that I want to I want to drill down on is the idea that we collectively have been suggested that there is one solution, that there's one way to handle this 
this this virus. Um, and all data aside, you know, for a moment, because we I, we're obviously going to go back into it a little bit. But if we just get rid of all of the data, the fact that we are given one solution and coerced into one solution, mandated into one solution to to think about how to stay healthy during this time. And the thing that is not being talked about is diet, exercise, stress management, sleep, sunlight, those sorts of things that are for you and I pretty obvious, pretty clear that that we can focus there. We can talk about that. We can uplift that narrative that there are some nutrients that you need and some things that you should be doing in your life if you want to stay healthy every day, but especially now. And so uh, I want to talk about the uh, I want to talk about your COVID guide, and I want to talk about how you formulated that, how you came to some of this stuff, some of the su- suggestions in there. But before we go into that, I, I do want to ask, what has been um, what has been the surprising part for you as this sort of reluctant advocate? in this process, in this process, because I feel like within people who within the field of optimal health and natural health, they've just been talking about this stuff for a long, long time, nutrition and, and, and health and energy and these things. Uh, But now as everybody else steps back, then there's Chris, you know, there's, uh, there's Chris master John, like, Oh, standing in the front going, Oh, well, I'll, I'll keep talking then. So tell me about that, that, that experience a little bit. Uh, when you say surprising, do you mean surprising from research or surprising from personal experience? I mean, from let's start with personal experience. Well, I mean, I never, I never would have expected that. Uh, well, first of all, I have way more friends than I ever had before, just because now I'm making friends with all the people that are, um, sort of actively opposing what's going on in New York. So, I mean, that that's interesting. Um, and I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have been, I wouldn't have expected to be spending a day of my week marching around the street, chanting things, uh, a couple months ago. And I think the most personally, probably the most personally surprising thing that's come out of that is, um, is just the, how everyone is, everyone who's marginalized in any way is coming out of the woodwork to show up together literally watched the uh head of black lives matter greater new york get up on the street yesterday and his opening question was why is black lives matter here with a bunch of trump supporters waving american flags (laughs) and uh just you know seeing just seeing the the way that people that you would never expect to come together come together i think is most personal experience surprising thing for me can you can you add some context to that what what was he talking about oh well um so we were at a rally to support Kyrie Irving who was not able to play in against the Charlotte Hornets in the Brooklyn Nets opening game at the Barclays Center and so around him he got a lot of support from uh so Reverend George, uh, uh, Reverend, sorry, Kevin McCall, who was, uh, the Reverend who presided over George Floyd's funeral last year in, uh, not funeral, his memorial in Brooklyn. Um, 
I believe that he was kind of like he spoke at a rally uh, last week. And so he got um, Hawk and Shivana Newsom, who are the heads of Black Lives Matter Greater New York, which is not affiliated with the, the global uh, BLM. Uh, they started collaborating with the teachers who are getting fired. From, so like there was a, I watched a co-interview a couple days ago between uh, Hawk Newsom and uh, Michael Kane of Teachers for Choice, where where they were just talking about the vaccine mandates. And so, um, you know, Hawk is coming from the place where he's saying like, you know, this is a slippery slope. And if you need this to get into a restaurant, there's no reason to think that you're not going to need it to get into the subway or that some police aren't going to be walking around the street, checking your papers on the street. Um, and, you know, his perspective is who do you think they're going to come after when they're around mm. harassing people on the street? And so he just sees that as a, and it's also the case that, you know, black people in New York city and in the United States in general are specifically the group that has the high, the highest um the lowest rate of vaccination. And so, you know, between the two of those, they feel like that's an imminent threat to their community. And so, sure. um, and so there was, you know, some coordination going mm. on, especially around uh, Kyrie not being able to play. It was kind of the, uh, the perfect example of where all those people would want to show up, um, you know, for the same cause. And so, uh, and so that's what happened. I mean, I, I think pe people are saying like, look, we have radically different ideas about some of these things, but we're going to put them aside for now. And we're going to focus on this, th this thing in front of us that we think yeah. is a lot more imminent of a threat to all of us. And we'll, you know, the most ironic thing though, right. Is that um, today is uh, I wasn't able to make it, but today is when the, the, the police uh, and the fire department, are marching from the fire department headquarters to, to city hall. And so to have Hawk Newsom up in the middle of the street on top of a, on top of a step stool. Yeah. Shouting out the stuff that the police are going to be same exact cause as the police today wow. is, is a remarkable thing. <laughs> wow. That I am so glad that you illuminated that because you're right. That is, that is inspiring. That is, and and he, yeah. he doesn't he so he doesn't like the police right but like later a bunch of us went to dinner, and um and some of the people in our group are very pro police and so a cop started driving by and um and one of the guys with us had a megaphone for the march and started cheering the cop on they stopped they rolled down the window and they said hey are you gonna show up tomorrow and they. They were, they said about the vaccine mandate. They said, yeah, and the cop in the car started chanting, no vaccine mandate. Wow. <laughs> so funny. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I mean, yeah, we, we, we all should be able to agree on bodily sovereignty, right? <laughs> like yeah. we should, well, I mean, the, the way that I see it is if, if we don't have that, what have I been doing the last 15 years? Because if, if someone's, if, if someone's, uh, if someone's able to tell you how you can take control of your health, there, yeah. there's no, there's no end to whether you have the right to drink uh, milk that was produced in a certain way, or whether you have the right to supplement in a certain way. And people have their heads in the sand if they don't see that, um, you know, all those things are under threat. Those things have been under threat longer than any of this has been going on. 
Uh, since 2008, there have been federal raids of raw food co-ops. There have yeah. been raw milk farmers where they just stop and take a truckload of milk and they just dump it out into the dirt. Um, there ha- there's a very clear movement in the United States to more uh, directly regulate supplements in a way that would essentially treat them similar to, to prescription uh, drug status, in which case you're not going to have the choices that you have, and it's going to be a lot more expensive. So it's, uh, it's not, you know, it's not too much connecting the dots. It's just looking at what's right in front of you. If you lose the principle that you, you know, that someone in some bureaucracy is the only person who has the authority to say how I can control my health, you will lose all of those other things. And so why have I been studying nutrition for the last 15 years if I if we don't have the right to decide how to keep ourselves healthy? Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. That That's such a key, I mean, it's fundamental. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I should be able to, to decide what goes in my body. That should not be controversial. That should not be um, uh seen in any way other than the fact that we should just be able to choose. We should just be able to choose. So yeah. then let's let's shift the focus then a little bit because we do need the tools. We do need the information. All of us need to understand that whether you got the shot or not, whether you've had COVID or not, whether whatever your sort of opinion is of the situation, there are things that you can take. There are things that you can do. There are things that you can eat overall, especially going into, you know, late October that you can and should be doing to increase your immune system to make yourself more resilient. So I want to shift to, to there a little bit. Um, can you, can you just talk a little bit about, uh, about the guide overall? Yeah. So the, the COVID guide is now in its, uh, the long title is the food and supplement guide for the coronavirus, COVID guide for short, it's now in its seventh edition. And I have, the first edition was basically the only thing we had available was to say, what did we do for cold and flu? And, you know, based on what we know about the mechanisms of this new coronavirus, uh, what might generalize and what might not, what should we, what, what should we embrace from cold and flu treatment and what should we be careful of? Um, but now that it's in its seventh version, there's now um, over 40 randomized controlled trials of nutrients, herbs, and related compounds to draw from. And so the focus of the guide now is what do we know from those clinical trials? And the guide uh, breaks down basically by how much evidence is there, how consistent is it, and how trustworthy is it? Um, should we you know, rate it at in, I rate it in one of three ways? The top tier is the essentials. The second tier is best add-ons and the third tier is these might help just based on, you know, I'm I'm very confident in the essentials. I think the best add-ons appear to probably work, but maybe we would want to see some more research to be fully confident. And these might help means there's some good reasons to think that they help, but we don't really have the, the proof, so to speak. Proof doesn't exist in empirical science, but the, you know, the supporting evidence, uh, that it actually works from clinical trials, but we have reasons to think that those are good things to do and the risks of them are quite low. Um, And so there are some things that probably will not surprise people in the guide. So for example, most people who know anything about nutrition and COVID know that vitamin D has a lot of research behind it. 
So, uh, and probably wouldn't be surprised by that, but um, basically keeping your, one thing that I, I think it's, it was coming out throughout 2020 that vitamin D was protected, that got stronger and stronger. One thing that wasn't really clear until the very end of 2020 is where you wanted your vitamin D levels. So a lot of the earlier research wasn't, it was able to say you definitely don't want to be under 20 nanograms per milliliter for the blood test. Um, and you pro and you almost certainly want to be above 30, but it wasn't really at the point where we could say, well, does it help to be above 40 or does it help to be above 50? And it's now pretty clear that where you want to be for maximal protection against the risk of infection is 50 to 60 nanograms per milliliter. And I was a little bit surprised by that because I've always been skeptical of the arguments for keeping vitamin D levels substantially higher than in the 30s. And uh, in this particular case, I think the data is really strong for that. Um, and then there's also a treatment component of that. So if you catch it early enough, doing 100,000 IU once or twice and 10,000 IU per day uh, during the illness wow. uh, should help a lot. And But then there, it's also the case that if you are 10 days into the illness, you're, you weren't keeping your vitamin D levels up and now you're in the emergency room. It's too late to do anything with the regular vitamin D you get at the store, but the doctor should be prescribing the active uh, or the, the semi-activated form calcifidiol um, as an in-house sort of in the hospital treatment. Uh, but if you're maintaining your blood levels at 50 to 60 nanograms per milliliter, you don't eat, you know, even if you don't get even if you don't know it's COVID until day six, uh, you were, you had good status going into it. And so you don't have to worry about that question. Right. So that mm. if you happen to know someone, you know, who's your, your grandfather, or your cousin, who never listens to you about nutrition, they're in the hospital. You probably should try to find out what, what they're getting and, and, and make sure they're getting the calcifidiol. But if it's you yourself, um, you don't have to worry about that if you preventatively keep your vitamin D levels up that high. So, so um, then, so then yeah, for most, for most people, what, what does that equate to, uh, as far as their consumption daily? Is it 5,000, yeah, so, 6,000, so 8,000? I would, I would, I would say the average person, 5,000 IU is what would get them there, but there is a lot of variability and it also obviously interacts with, uh, your sun exposure. So, it, and of course, where you live. So if you're living in an environment that doesn't have much sun exposure or you're never outside during peak UV hours, uh, so solar noon is generally going to, well, locally here, it's usually, usually closer to one than to noon. But, you know, in the mid in, in the afternoon, if in the early afternoon, if you're not outdoors, you don't have any skin exposed, et cetera. Um, uh, if you have dark skin and you don't spend hours out outside, you know, so many different things can affect that. Um, and then of course your body fat levels can affect it too, because uh, carrying excess body fat acts as a sink for vitamin D and raises the dose of vitamin D that you need to achieve a certain blood level. So I would say the average person, 5,000 IU a day, but there's not really any replacement for getting your levels checked mm, because yeah. that will vary, you know? Yeah. So let me just recap the takeaway for, for that yeah. for people. You know, there are there are droppers, there are you know little soft gels. Um, you can pick it up a lot of different places. There's, there's lots of high quality vitamin D products out there. In fact, I think I know Athletic Greens is like giving you a dropper um, that has six hundred, I think, um, doses in it, daily doses in it. Um, but 
5,000 IUs, that's sometimes five little pills or maybe two or three of the bigger pills just for, for people to sort of keep following along. Okay. So, so um, for, for a guy like me in the Northwest, who's, you know, not going to have lots of sun exposure for the next uh, probably eight months, you know, long time till summer, till August. Um, it's important for me to get, they get that 5,000. Okay. So then, then, then what else, what, what are some other key tenets of, of the COVID guide? Yeah. So, uh, I think if I could just, uh, break it apart into some of the things that are, that are most interesting, I guess the, the, you know, the next thing I'd lead with, so vitamin D, I think will not be surprising to a lot of people, although I think a lot of people will value the dosing information, um, one thing that I think a lot, most people don't know about, and some people might have heard contrary things about is arginine. So arginine is an amino acid. Amino acid, amino acids are the building blocks of the protein that you eat. So you do get arginine from uh, the dietary protein in your diet, uh, the protein in your diet. But in this particular case, we're talking about a randomized controlled trial that was done with supplementing 3.2 grams of L-arginine as a supplement on top of what people were eating from the protein in their diet in the background. And this trial, uh, it's not, it's not done. So it's there, the way they do these trials, if you read a scientific paper, it kind of sounds like they recruited everyone at once and then they randomized them. And then, you know, they waited the X amount of time, What they actually usually do is they do it continuously. So they're randomizing people as they're coming in but it might take them a year to recruit all the people. And so they report it as if it all happened at one time, but it didn't. And so in, Interesting. in this, in this trial, their, their ultimate paper is going to have a, around 300 people in it. But at, as when they had gotten the data for the first hundred people or 101 to be exact, uh, the results were so compelling that at the in, when they did the interim evaluate, Oh, the other thing they do is, a lot of times they'll, especially with a serious disease that can cause people to die, is they'll do periodic interim analyses to see if it looks like it's doing nothing or if it looks like it's so effective that either it's doing nothing and so it should be canceled for futility or it's harmful, so it should be canceled for that, or it's so helpful that, it, that it's like unethical to, to not give it to everyone. Um, and so usually things fall in the middle. And so they don't cancel the trial. Uh -huh. um, and that's what, ha and that is what ha is happening here. However, the interim analysis was so compelling to report that, that this interim analysis with the first hundred people randomized showed that when people were given the arginine after they already had been sick for 10 days and they already had established respiratory distress and they already had their blood markers making it look like they had a very serious chance of dying. Okay. So it's not early treatment. This is, this is late treatment with arginine people who are half dead huh. of respiratory distress, 3.2 grams of L arginine in two divided doses of 1.6 grams per day led to an almost sevenfold increased likelihood that they would uh, require less oxygen support by day 10. And what, what that means is, you know, if they had invasive mechanical ventilation, if they could get, you know, turned on to just an oxygen mask or something, they counted as improved. So it was, uh, but if they just had an oxygen mask, then if they, you know, didn't need oxygen anymore. So as 
as long as they made verifiable progress to get better instead of worse. Because remember, the people who die are the people who get worse over time, not the people who get better over time. So a sevenfold increase in getting better by day 10, which um, we can't say whether it affected death yet because we don't have the stats, but three people died in the placebo group and no one died in the arginine group. So it is uh, consistent with the possibility that the arginine is... Uh, anywhere from strongly protecting against to abolishing the risk of death. And what's, and what's basically interesting about this is we already know that being sick with COVID depletes your arginine levels. And the more severe it is, the more the arginine goes down. And we also already know that arginine is the donor for nitric oxide, mm-hmm. which widens your blood vessels. And so if you have a clotting risk, it not only has a little bit of an anti-clotting effect, but also even if you get a blood clot, it only blocks the vessel in a fatal way if that blood clot, if that blood vessel can't widen uh, enough to compensate for it, right? So if you widen the blood vessel enough, then you can have some clotting going on, but the blood still flows. Uh, but then also inside the lungs, nitric oxide combines with another molecule called glutathione to make nitrosoglutathione, which is what dilates your airways. And so when an asthmatic inhales, they inhale uh, steroids and a bronchodilator, the bronchodilator is a replacement for the nitrosoglutathione that they're missing in their lungs. Um, And if an asthma person winds up in the ER for an asthma attack that was severe enough to put them in the ER, their nitrosoglutathione levels in their lungs probably drop to zero. So this is the thing that widens the airways. Um, And you can debate exactly why people are getting hypoxemia in COVID-related respiratory distress. It seems that the that blood clotting in the small vessels that it help with gas exchange in the lungs is actually the reason. And so nitric oxide is going to help widen those blood vessels and help with that. But regardless of why, regardless of the mechanism of your hypoxemia, if you can keep your airways nice and open, you're going to do better than if you can't. Yeah. And so and so keeping the nitric oxide supply in the lungs is going to be a very critical factor in just keeping the air flowing and keeping the gas exchange going. Um, And so that just the mechanistic sense and the known arginine depletion that occurs as a result of severe COVID cases and the interim results of that trial all make it look like arginine is is one of the go-to things for treatment. And, uh, and, and it, I'm very eager to see when the full results come out, if the death uh, difference is statistically significant or if it stays zero, that would be incredible. Um, But what's phenomenal about this is how powerful it is in people who didn't get early treatment, because usually with like, just as I was saying for vitamin D, um, usually there's a point at which it's too late. And the way we usually think about it is, well, if you, if you have, if you come in, for prevention or early treatment, these nutritional things might help. But once someone winds up in the hospital, now it's time for the doctors to take over with the real medicine. And this trial makes it look like actually L-arginine is one of those real medicines that should be used even when someone that should be especially used when someone is hospitalized. Wow. Wow. Man, hearing, hearing the mechanism of how that works is, is fascinating. I, I, we all are, I think everyone listening is going, Whoa, okay. All right. That makes sense. You follow that. Uh, where can we get uh, arginine dietarily? 
Well, arginine is a very common amino acid in the foods that you eat and in the protein that you eat. And so you're talking about, I mean, you, you could break down different foods by the percentage arginine, but if you're just eating animal protein, then you're getting plenty of arginine from that because you're getting all the amino acids from that. So I would think of your main arginine sources as protein foods, you know, yeah. meats, uh, meats, fish, eggs, dairy, etc. Um, some people take arginine, some people avoid arginine because it can, uh, it can increase the rate of growth of a herpes virus. And so people who have cold sores breakout, cold sore breakouts, uh, can get them in response to higher levels of dietary arginine. So those, so people like that sometimes go into the weeds of, you know, what, what foods are higher or lower in arginine because they're trying to micromanage it. Mm. But I don't think that makes sense from a COVID prevention standpoint. And personally, I, you know, I have some arginine, L-arginine in my cabinet that I'll probably never take, but I have it there in case I wind up with COVID respiratory distress as I view that sort of as band-aids, you know, I'm not planning on cutting myself, but <laughs> I have band-aids in the cabinet for if yeah. it happens, you know, right. I just, I, I think the results of that study are compelling enough to just keep that as kind of a first part of your first aid kit. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know there's, there's two more that, that I wanted to, I know that you're going to cover kind of the, 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 the big surprising or, or fascinating aspects of this, but zinc and vitamin C seem to me to be sort of basic. I mean, you know, I'd get zinc lozenges as a kid, you know, <laughs> drink a bunch of OJ when I'm sick. Well, obviously I know now it's not, not particularly a great idea for the glucose, but like the, the idea, uh, the idea is still there. So um, tell us a little bit about the importance uh, of vitamin C. Yeah. So just on the, on the OJ front, it is, it is, I, now that I'm, now that I have a PhD in, in this stuff, um, it just seems weird to me to think of orange juice as like the one place you get vitamin C. Right. Um, but I do remember, I also, when I was like 15, I, you know, I get sick, I'd be like, oh, I gotta go break out the orange juice. Yeah. And so I was, I was listening to some, I was listening to some uh, agricultural investors on this um, financial membership program where they interview like top finance investors and I'm listening to this guy who's tr who's trying to predict whether the price of OJ is going to go up or not based on how bad the COVID cases are going to get. And I'm uh -huh. like, what? Uh -huh. Right. <laughs> but that's how, but that's how, uh, that's how ingrained it is in, in people's minds that OJ is the one place you get vitamin C. But yeah. anyway, so if we go back and look at, um, I think it. I think to put perspective on this, it helps a lot to go back and think of what are what is the place of zinc and vitamin C for the cold, uh, for the common cold, because that's where most of our information actually comes from, especially pre-COVID. But e but even now, I think uh, it it provides a lot of background insight. So for and zinc and vitamin C both have very different places in the common cold. So for vitamin C the most compelling evidence across all the common cold studies is not as a treatment for the cold and not as a prophylactic for the general population, but as a prophylactic for people who engage in high intensity exercise or especially in 
very long duration, excruciating exercise. Hmm. So marathon runners and um, Arctic explorers and uh, basically people who just engage in a lot of activity that has its own generation of oxidative stress that, that raises the need for vitamin C getting an extra 250 milligrams to two grams of vitamin C uh, in the different trials done in those groups. Those are the trials that were successful in cutting the incidence of colds in half. Right. Mm. So, so there's a lot of controversy over the conflict in evidence of once you get sick, does it help to give you vitamin C, but where those trials are real consistent and where there's not really a lot of room for controversy is if your demands are high because you're so active, and that's a lot of us who are listening in, right? We might not officially be a marathon runner, but we might have a squat rack next to us yeah, on, right. on the podcast. You know? X3 bars um, and BFR bands right. so, behind you. So we're, we're, I actually have an X3 bar on the shelf over there too. Um, so we're, we're not really in the general population. So this actually probably does apply to a lot of us. Um, but that's where it is. You, you're very active. So your needs for vitamin C are high and you are less likely to get a cold if you proactively add the vitamin C to your diet. And some try, some trials used as high as 2000 milligrams and some as low as 250 milligrams, but it seems that doses in that range all mostly do the same thing across those studies. So I'm going to guess that the 250 milligrams is probably good enough, but that's also, you know, that has controversial that's also controversial because none of these studies really compared them head to head. Okay. So going into COVID with vitamin C, then the, the, pro, the, the study that would most replicate what we knew from the cold is do athletes or other people who we, we expect to have high needs for vitamin C, do they have a lower incidence if they take it preventative preventatively for, for now, there's one other thing that's been shown with zinc, which is in um, ARDS, which is, which currently stands for acute respiratory distress syndrome, but when it was first coined, stood for adult respiratory distress syndrome, which was meant to say that this is the adult version of infant respiratory distress syndrome, huh. and which is not a disease and which isn't really a syndrome either, but is actually a collection of syndromes that were grouped together, not for any biological reason, but because if they grouped them together as ARDS, they would have a better chance of getting statistical significance in clinical trials because there were a larger number of people who had ARDS once they combined all the different respiratory syndromes into one category. Hmm. And so if you, so in those, in ARDS, high-dose intravenous vitamin C is excellent at dramatically reducing the mortality rate. Now, the problem with that is from the very beginning of the pandemic, starting in Italy and then followed by uh, one of the doctors in New York City um, as soon as it came here, everyone from the very beginning was pointing out that the COVID of ARDS is atypical. And so generally speaking in, in ARDS, one of the things that, that, that you see, is, and when you're putting someone on mechanical ventilation, um, part of the reason is that the, lung, the function of the muscles around the lung don't work that well. And so the actual ability of the lungs to expand and contract um, and suck things in and blow them out, like that mechanical function of the lung is a main, is, is failing and is, and is very well correlated to the hypoxemia. 
And one thing that they noticed from the very beginning in COVID is that uh, that correlation is much lower. So you have, if you look at the function, the mechanical functioning of the lung, it might be hurt, but the hypoxemia comes before the lung function is ever hurt. And at any point in the severity of it, the hypoxemia, low blood oxygen, is much worse than the, than the impairment in lung function. And it seems like the probable reason for that is that the blood vessels that carry gases into and out of the lungs are being hurt partly by small blood clots. And so because, because the reason someone winds up with ARDS and COVID is fundamentally different than the reason that someone winds up in, it's fundamentally different than most other cases of ARDS. Um, and that because of that discrepancy, we have to study high dose vitamin, intravenous vitamin C in COVID and not just assume that ARDS, that what we already know from ARDS translates. Hmm. Um, okay, and then for zinc, it's probably the case that having good zinc status going into a cold is protective, but where the trials really shine is with uh, zinc lozenges. Uh, the most effective ones are zinc acetate, and the most common ones, but which are less effective but still effective, are zinc gluconate. And as long as these lozenges are not candied, and as long as they don't have negative ingredients that can bind up the zinc, uh, the the best ones that I the, I, the ones I use are life extension zinc acetate lozenges because they line up with uh, what I found in the liter literature to maximally increase the ionizable zinc delivered to the nose and throat tissue. Those, uh, what those do is they saturate the nose and throat um, immune system tissue with zinc so that when the cold virus tries to infect the cells, the zinc blocks it from doing so. And so yeah, you probably want nutritional zinc, but it's those zinc lozenges used acutely at first onset of symptoms and used consistently at a high enough dose with basically half the day spent sucking on them hmm. to maintain the, the ionizable zinc at a high enough concentration. That's what's super effective at a cold. Okay, so going into COVID, what do we know? So first of all, no one has done any studies on seeing whether athletes supplementing with vitamin C have... Uh, protection against incidents of COVID. There is a COVID symptom tracking app that looks at data from uh, mostly it's a it's, uh, few million people spread across the US, UK, and Sweden. And they found no correlation between vitamin C supplementation and COVID risk. Um, the, there's only one other preventative study, unless there was one just released, you know, in the last day or so. But um, as of recently, there was only one other preventative study that was done in India, and it found a borderline, it was done in high-risk healthcare workers. Now, you might say, well, they're not athletes, but maybe they have a higher need of vitamin C because they have more exposure. And so that would be plausible, right? Hmm. Find the special population that has higher risk. And what that found was they seemed to have a lower risk of COVID incidence if they took vitamin C, but it wasn't statistically significant. And then when they adjusted for ivermectin, which was also associated with the lower risk, um, the, it, it, the vitamin C didn't even look even close to having statistical significance. And hmm. so it's maybe if they had more people and maybe if they were looking at different populations, if there were more studies, we might find that preventative effect, but we don't really have a good study 
you know, if we want to replicate what was really convincing from the cold, we want to find the people who have increased needs for vitamin C and then randomize them to a, to a preventative dose going into it and have enough statistical power to see mm. that. And so I'm agnostic on whether vitamin C would work in those studies because those studies really haven't been done. Now we have, um, we do have uh, a lot of the, a lot of the oral therapeutic studies that we have with a few exceptions are, um, are just observational studies of they were first, you know, when COVID first came around, some of the people were taking this, some of the, some of those weren't, what was the death rate? And they're not really that well designed. They're just reports of when people had no idea what anything did, like public health departments were just reporting, you know, raw statistics of who was dying and who was taking what just to try to help generate and brainstorm some ideas. And so those look kind of all over the, all over the map. Um, and then across the studies with, with oral high dose vitamin C and intravenous vitamin C, where we don't, um, where we have the most data. So I, there's more, there's more studies of high dose intravenous vitamin C in severe cases than there is for any of the, any of these other things. Um, it kind of looks like the better quality, the better the quality of the data, the more you start to see an effect of vitamin C emerging. But unfortunately, one of the, the, the best controlled IV vitamin C study was done in China at a time when halfway through the study, the COVID cases like went away because the pandemic got under control. Huh. And so they had to cut the study early um, because they didn't have enough people coming into it anymore. So it looks like from that study that it probably has a mortality reducing effect, but they weren't really able to show it very rigorously mm. because their, because their sample size got cut. So in my COVID guide, I think a lot of people will be surprised to see that vitamin C doesn't have a specific place mm. um, in the guide. Uh, but, and that's because the data just honestly, it's, it's a bit all over the map and it's not very consistently showing a protective effect. However, um, one of the things I did in the guide was make the point that I have an appendix there that is called how to get enough of everything. And one of the points that I make there is that, look, there might not be any convincing specific evidence on, on this nutrient from the clinical trials that we have now, but it's pretty absurd to think that you can be deficient in vitamin C and not suffer a worse outcome from that. And you, you know, whatever, you're only as good as the weakest link in your chain. And so, yeah, we might have way more vitamin D studies than we have any, any of these other nutrients. Um, but it's, it's very naive to think that you can be deficient in any of these nutrients and it's not going to hurt your immune system because they all, every nutrient, whether it's well studied or not, plays a role in the immune system. And so I do wind up advocating basically the dose of vitamin C that, that was successful in the cold trials anyway, because the data just generally speaking suggests that you should get, you know, at least hundred to 150 milligrams of vitamin C and you can probably get the best dose if you get 400 milligrams spread evenly across the day. Hmm. Um, and so I, I generally give guidance in that range anyway. Um, so vitamin C is there. It just doesn't have that prominent place. And then zinc, we don't, all we have for the type of study you would want is a report of four cases where it really seems like the stories 
show that people using zinc lozenges the way that would kill a cold are very effective against COVID, but it's just for anecdotal reports. Hmm. Um, they look convincing because in one person, they tried getting rid of lowering the dose and then they got worse and then they added it back and they got better. So it looks pretty convincing. I'm convinced they work because I got COVID twice. And so I have, I can report like I, um, the last, the second time I got COVID, uh, it started deep in my lungs and I, um, as congestion and I think I made a mistake by not doing any treatment with uh, like iodine in my nose, for example, because I thought, why bother? I don't have any symptoms in my nose. But the reason I didn't have any symptoms in my nose because of the zinc lozenges. And it was really clear just from the experience of getting a little bit behind on them or doubling up on them that the zinc acetate lozenges were the one thing that stopped the symptoms from moving from my chest into my nose. And that's exactly consistent with what you would expect that the zinc, the zinc acetate lozenges sucking on them is extremely good at just saturating the nose, mouth and throat with the zinc ions. And so they can have their antiviral effect right there. Uh, unfortunately, there's no equivalent for like inhaling zinc gas that can do the same thing in your lungs. And the best thing to do for that is to just go you know, be in a preventative way, always get a good zinc intake so that your whole body is very well saturated with, with zinc. Um, but even though the data is not there, the zinc acetate lo lozenges make it into the best add-ons category just because yeah. I'm just so convinced from personal experience and from the case reports. Yeah. Yeah. Well, again, uh, I got zinc when I was sick growing up, um, you know, lozenges too. Again, uh, that's, that's just one, one little snotty kid who's trying to get over a cold, <laughs> but, uh, I want to run well, something. The data, the data is real good on those lozenges in the cold though. Yeah. Cool. Well, I, I want to run something by you, um, because I think you're the guy to ask. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with these Zyverto kits. Um, and, and this is outside of uh, nutrition, of course, but, uh, it's, it's got zinc acetate at 50 milligrams, doxycycline, hundred milligrams and ivermectin at 12 milligrams. You can buy these packs. Um, and I won't go into too much detail on it for fear of, uh, I don't know, maybe overexposure, but I heard it from another, another podcaster, um, who, uh, sent one to his daughter who was symptomatic early and, and, and bad. And, and it helped really quick. What, what, what does anything jump out to you there? I mean, can you, can you speak on ivermectin or, or doxycycline uh, or, or maybe the I combination? Mean, not, not, not with the same confidence that I can, that I can speak to on the nutritional stuff. So I know, um, I mean, I've looked at meta-analyses on ivermectin. I haven't really done a deep dive into, some of the concerns over, I know there were concerns over a couple of trials having some fraudulent data. Um, and, but I mean, overall, it looks to me like the ivermectin studies on the whole are, are promising on reducing infection risk and, uh, and improving uh, cases once you get sick. And uh, I know that I, and I think a lot of people just fall onto like where their bias, where their existing bias is. So some, you know, people who don't want to believe the ivermectin studies point to like, well, when they took out these two questionable studies, it lost the, st the statistical significance for the mortality benefit or whatever. But 
um, I mean, you have to look at these trials as uh, if, you know, if the data, if the studies could be better, um, then it behooves us to do the better studies. In the meantime, we got to make a decision. Yeah. Uh, and it's, I mean, it's, ivermectin just looks more promising than not to me when used as a human medication, obviously not as a horse paste. Yeah. We've, uh, <laughs> but, and I, I also, even though I haven't done a real deep dive into it, like I have done on the nutrients, I'm just, I'm the arguments against ivermectin are so terrible that it makes me more more it looks more promising to me because of the arguments against it so for example the this is horse dewormer argument is the most ridiculous one um just i I feel like i'll i'll state the obvious so the reason that's ridiculous is um there's a human version that people take (laughs) I don't know yeah. why. I don't yeah. know why I need to explain that. It's just yeah. so, I mean, so the fact that people need to resort to arguments like that just makes me more bullish on ivermectin because it's like, wow, yeah. that's the best you got. But the other thing is, you know, I, so I was talking to someone um, who I used to consider a friend and colleague. I, I'll still consider this person a friend and colleague if they'll consider me, I'm not sure. But anyway, they were, they were, they posted something on Facebook saying, uh, when you remove these two questionable trials on ivermectin, you lose statistical significance on the mortality benefit. And I said, well, no one's ever shown in a clinical trial that the Pfizer vaccine has a mortality benefit. There were 29 deaths in the six-month follow-up. It's not six-month follow-up. It, it was six months of the trial follow-up. But remember how I said in these trials, people are randomized at different points in time. Mm. It's not all done at the same time. So a slight majority of people have between four and six months follow-up a very tiny percentage of people have more than six months follow-up and most of the remaining 40 something percent have follow-up shorter than four months Hmm. so in the three or four month follow-up of the pfizer trial there were 29 deaths 15 the vaccine group and 14 the placebo group and so i said you know why are we holding ivermectin to the standard that it has to have clinical trial statistical significance mortality benefit when we don't even have a trend towards a mortality benefit that i mean that's better than what you can say for the pfizer trial in which literally one more person died in the vaccine group than the placebo group and of course there were an odd number of deaths so one of the groups had to have one more person so you can just call it even and say it was even between the two groups but you know if you're holding why wouldn't you evaluate them by the same standard of evidence and that person said to me, yeah, but no one, no rational person would, consi- would, would question whether the Pfizer vaccine is reducing deaths now from the real world data. And I said, well, you know, that's because you rolled it out to billions of people. And so you, of course, you could do an observational study with really good statistical power when you basically made a billion people take it. <laughs> Yeah. And so in you know in that in that case why aren't we looking at why the, the like the African countries that use ivermectin against parasites have 10% the covid mortality as the ones that don't. Mm. Like that's the same level that's the same type of evidence. So um I just feel like the fact that all these people are just they're holding ivermectin to this totally different standard of evidence than they're holding the Pfizer vaccine to just also makes me you know, it's the same thing as the horse dewormer. It's just like, that's not a very good argument. So if that's the best you got in the meantime, uh, you know, I don't, I don't keep ivermectin here just because I feel so confident in the nutritional stuff I do. And I feel like that's my core expertise, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, but I, 
I have family. Uh, I don't want to be too disclosing of people, but you know, I know people who will prescribe ivermectin, who have ivermectin, who would take it. And I don't try to argue them out of it because it, you know, they, they feel more confident on what they know about that than they do on nutritional stuff. I feel more confident in nutritional stuff because that's where my core expertise is. Yeah. Um, and so I, now, I'm not going to argue them out of it. It looks it looks promising enough. Yeah. You know. Right. This is a nice parlay, a nice transition into the next the next little bit. You know, as we kind of take it kind of towards the end of of our conversation, and and I just want to say thank you for for uh, you always deliver, Chris. You always give thank really you. great <laughs> answer, really thought out. You're pointing to all of these studies. Uh, in in the the cases that you make and the suggestions that you make, um, the document is incredible. It's uh, it's it's robust. It's got a ton of information. It's got it's you know it's sixty pages with citations. Um, it's incredible. So so I want to go. I want to I want to pivot just a little bit and sure. uh, ask about the for you to muse a little bit on how it is that people might be able to seek out better health resources um, to maybe shield themselves from damaging or unhelpful propaganda. Again, the t-shirt says it all freedom over fear (laughs) that it and freedom comes from knowing your stuff and under being knowledge that makes you free uh, to, to, to be, to make your own decisions with confidence. Um, so how do you approach, um, the fact finding sort of sort of base level casual, um, information that's out there so you can use your sense of, um, um, agency and discernment during this strange time? How do you do it? And how do you maybe tell clients or friends to do it? So I think how you approach this is going to depend on where you're coming from in terms of your skill set. So for me, it's going to be different from what most people who listen to me, uh, just because I have a PhD in a biological field. And so uh, that makes me well-skilled at reading primary research papers not only in nutrition, but in really any of these other related fields, you know, like I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trained in the advanced statistics that people will do in uh, epidemiological studies, but I am very skilled in the lab techniques that would be used in virology or immunology or any of these other uh, biological fields. And so any of, any of these basic science papers um, or randomized controlled trials are just, it's my primary skill set to actually read them. And so I think that's, you know, there's a small handful of people who are probably listening to us for whom that's true. And most other people, that's, that's probably not the case. And it also ma- matters how much time you have too. So, you know, I, I can, I can devote 40 hours a week to reading this stuff because I can make money on producing something from it. Whereas people who have another job who are, you know, can maybe devote an hour a day to learning about this stuff are not going to be able to sift through 40 randomized controlled trials to figure out what's the best nutritional approach. Great point. And so, and so I think that regardless of where you're coming from, and I've always believed this, this has 
almost nothing to do with discernment in the current period. Although I do think that coming from this perspective makes me well, has protected me a little bit now that it becomes more important not to get stuck in your own echo chamber. But I've always believed that the appropriate way to decide any issue is to try to listen to the best that both sides have to offer at the level of technical detail that you're competent to understand. And I believe that there are, there are some people who I think are just flat out wrong in believing this, but they believe that you need to have some level of expertise to be able to get to the point where you can make a decision about something. I think that's, I think that's catastrophically wrong from both a moral and utilitarian perspective. I think it's immoral to treat people like that. Um, and I and I think it, from a utilitarian perspective, it breeds people that can't make decisions. And I, I've actually I've always felt very very strongly about this, that um, that you know beginning beginning when people what beginning when people are two three years old or or at whatever point they can make decisions. I think as a parent, I'm not a parent, but I will practice this if and when I become a parent. I think as a parent, you should start giving your kids a certain amount of freedom where they are from the beginning taking some responsibility at the level that a two-year-old can handle so that they learn something about making decisions so that by the time they're four, they actually are a little bit more responsible than they would have been. And I'm not saying you should give them total freedom to do whatever they want and to eat, you know, whatever piece of the couch they want to eat and whatever. <laughs> um, but you need to decide as a parent, like within certain confines, I'm going to help start empowering them to be able to make decisions. And so I believe Einstein, I believe I'm in paraphrasing something Einstein at one point said, and I'm paraphrasing hard here. This is my phrasing. Um, but I believe Einstein agreed with me at, in, at one point. I think you can teach a four-year-old uh, physics. You just have to figure out how to explain it to a four-year-old. And if you can't explain physics to a four-year-old, you probably don't know much about physics. Mm -hmm. And so I think someone who has even a modicum of being a good teacher and also has, if you can't break something down for a six-year-old to explain it, then you probably don't have expertise in that thing, or you're so lost in your own mind that you just can't, you never thought about how to communicate about it before. But, you know, generally speaking, there is a level that a four-year-old and that a 12-year-old and that a 20-year-old and that a person with who's still in high school and a person with a bachelor's degree in English. Um, all these people have different levels with which they can get engage with, with science. And so I think um, as someone who is that person, uh, you know, the, at whatever level you are, you got to say, look, who's producing science at a level that I can understand. And then at that point you find those people and you make sure that you're getting opposing views. And so you say, I want to challenge myself. I'm biased towards believing that this is true. What's the best argument that someone has from the other side at the level that I can understand? And then, you know, listen to those sides. And, you know, so, so someone may be coming at this from pro-vaccine or anti-vaccine or pro-vitamin C or anti-vitamin C or, you know, nutrition can work, nutrition can't work. At whatever level that is, you got to find the people that speak to you at your technical level of detail and make sure that you are picking opposing sides on something until you feel like you've really given the opposite side. It's, you know, the, the, um, the best chance to convince you. And, um, 
That's well said. And I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I th- that's the only umbrella recommendation I can I can make. That's going to apply to so many people in so many different ways because there are so many levels of those things, levels of technical detail that people have to engage with. On that on that note, I, I'm I'm sure you saw uh, Sanjay Gupta on Joe Rogan. Uh, did you? I, did I didn't. I didn't see the. I saw the clip of uh, Rogan saying, "Why? Why do they lie about why, me? Why are you but lying?" I didn't. I yeah. didn't. Re- I didn't watch the whole interview yet. You, you should watch it because it does a really accessible way of. And this is what makes Joe so incredible: is he he asks the question that everyone's wondering, like, "Well, if." And in that specific case, well, it's Nobel Prize winning science in medication, form medication that we've been using for a long time for a lot of things for humans. Why did they say the other way? And and also goes into some sort of the the logic or illogic that's happening on on, on the on the opposing sides and picking that apart. It's really worth checking out because uh, it does a really good job of sort of parsing out like for a layman who doesn't, who's still going, this is some of this, this doesn't make sense. Why doesn't this make sense? They, yeah. they dig into why, which I think is really well, important. I think Rogan's a great example of, of someone who, you know, pulls on opposite perspectives on topics yeah. at a level that the average person who's listening to this podcast could, uh, you know, would be optimally suited to digest. Um, and I, of course, this thing, I mean, I'm sort of in, I have a PhD in nutritional sciences, but I don't have a PhD in everything else. And so, um, you know, I'm, when it comes to talking about politics or something, I'm sort of in the same camp as everyone else is when they're trying to learn about nutrition, where it's, you know, it's, it's outside of my thing. And so I think um, basic, I think Rogan has like a very, um, you know, very well engaged to bring the level of intelligence up, but, the fact that Rog- Rogan's not an expert in any of these things is mm-hmm. what makes it what guarantees you that he's going to ask the questions that we would all want as a non-expert to ask of those people. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, before we, before we wrap it up, um, explain, explain your shirt. If you would, again, I'll just tell for all of you not watching on YouTube, oh. it says freedom <laughs> over fear. What does that mean to you? Um, well, it means two things. So first of all, this shirt uh, is produced by Max Public House, who um, who stayed open when New York went under lockdown. Is it like until, a bar and grill? Uh, yeah, until nice. they took away their their liquor license, and now they're wrapped up in court battles. A judge just dismissed over a dozen summons as politically motivated, and he's got a lawsuit against the city over it. And so now he pivoted into making T-shirts, and so I bought the T-shirt at <laughs> FreedomOverFearUSA.com. Uh, to support Danny, Danny Presti and Max, Max Public House. And actually, I know about I know about them because the and these are connections that I made just in the uh, protesting the mandate movement. Uh, one of the guys who was uh, John Matlin runs an Instagram called We the People Are the News, and he was uh, organizing the healthcare workers and he got he got framed and fired for organizing the healthcare workers on dubious grounds. And then he filled a, a grievance report and got his job back. And then he got fired the following Friday over the vaccine mandate. Oh my gosh. But anyway, he invited me on his show to talk about COVID and then he was doing a live like all night long. And then he had um, Danny on after me and an activist from Australia. And I just stayed on and, and wound up chatting in a group of four 
and that and uh, that's how I found out about these T-shirts. So that's the that's the sort of literal story behind it. But uh, freedom over fear is I mean, this that's also something that we just chant walking down the street. Freedom over fear, freedom over fear. And that, you know, it it goes it's a mindset. Right. So um, I think was it Ben Franklin who said those those who would sacrifice uh liberty uh sacrifice liberty for safety deserve neither of them mm-hmm. um i would say those who sacrifice liberty for safety lose both of them regardless of what they deserve and that's not a moral judgment that's a factual judgment because the fact of the matter is um you know if you look for example at the things that are being mandated uh or you no matter what you pick pick your lockdowns pick your vaccine mandates the raw data across jurisdictions and across countries suggests that there's not really any correlation between success at getting rid of the pandemic and any of those and any of the liberty sacrificing measures. And people will come and say, well, that's because they're confounded by this, that, and the other thing. But when you're talking about a mandate, you don't want highly controlled data because the bouncer who's telling you you can't come in the restaurant or the person who's firing you from their job, they're not performing a sophisticated multivariate analysis of your BMI and your age and all this stuff. They're just firing you from your job or they're not letting you in the restaurant. And so it's the raw data that you want to look at. And I think the general trend is that the more people do to sacrifice freedom out of fear, they are losing their safety in the process because they are, um, you know, it's it's like trying to play whack-a-mole where if you're trying to, mat, you know, hit that thing on the head with force, you're going to get surprised when it pops up the other hole and you're not going to be, if you're not thinking about how to, I think if we had put our attention into how do we, um, how do we keep, uh, how do we stay vibrant and how do we stay free and how do we stay productive? And meanwhile, what are all the options that we can creatively think of to keep us safe, Mm. I think we would have thought a lot more creatively and would be ahead of where we are now in terms of coming up with a complex, rich array of things that we can do to keep ourselves ourselves free and safe. But one of the things that happens when you sacrifice freedom for safety is not only do you wind up misguidedly thinking that that sacrifice will get you safety when it won't, but you also lose any motivation you have into thinking about how to keep yourself safe because you think someone else is, you think I'm giving them my freedom Mm. on loan because they're going to keep me safe. Mm -hmm. And then when they decide they'll give my freedom back to me, what actually happened is you gave away your freedom permanently. They're never going to give it back. They don't know how to keep you safe. So you lost your safety. Yeah. And now you and now you gave up all responsibility you should have had to thinking of how you're going to keep yourself safe. And so now you are three times worse worse off because you gave up your freedom, you gave up your safety, and you gave up the self-awareness and the and the responsibility that you have to creatively think through how you can keep yourself safe. So now you lost control over your own self. Hmm. And so I think, I think if we put freedom over fear, you know, when people are highly, fear has a pot, fear is not bad. It has a place, right? But when you succumb to fear as the governing force in your life, you can't think rationally about anything. 
And so uh, when, you, when you value your freedom over your fear, you listen to the fear, but you don't let it control you at the expense of your freedom. Um, I think that is what would keep us most safe. And then we would still be free. Hmm. Well said. Thank you for that. That that's such a powerful two minutes right there. I really, I really appreciate you unpacking that. That makes so much sense. Um, well, uh, Chris, where, where can people find you if they said, Hey man, I like this guy. Uh, where can I find out more? Where should people connect? ChrisMasterJohnPhD.com is my website. Um, at ChrisMasterJohn on all social media for now. Um, I would say Instagram probably will be the first one to cut me off, but I'm <laughs> trying to uh, countervene that. But uh, I would suggest people definitely join my occasional email newsletter, ChrisMasterJohnPhD.com slash newsletter, because no one's going to deplatform me from my own email list. So yeah, um, yeah. awesome. Chris, thank you so much uh, for joining me again on the Optimal Performance Podcast. Thanks for having me, Sean. It was great.